Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Boris Johnson laying down the political cushioning for a Russian victory in Ukraine. We're going to talk about Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin's trip to Ukraine and the press conference they did in Poland. And after that, we're going to talk about a major update on the the Russo-Ukrainian war. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so finland and sweden have actually gone forward and begun their applications for nato i've laid out that i think this isn't going to end well for them especially in the event that nato and russia actually come to blows instead of you know just a proxy war in ukraine but that's the decision they are sovereign nations i think it's a bad decision But that's their decision to make. We'll see what becomes of this in the future, though. Particularly for Finland. Uh, Then we have a big piece of news, which is Emmanuel Macron winning re-election in France. And he will now serve another five years as the president of France. Although the parliamentary elections are still coming up. So we'll see if he's given a mandate or if he's essentially been checked and balanced by an opposition parliament because maybe not an opposition parliament i'm pretty sure pretty sure he would still need a majority in order to be president uh but regardless we could see a large opposition still make its uh presence known in parliament or conversely we could see him being given a mandate And he'll probably move forward with the policies he's been doing so far, uh, namely supporting Ukraine, further pursuing further integration into the EU, uh, which my personal opinion is that's going to be a dead end, but they can still try, and under Macron they will try. Uh, The crackdown on Muslims, which is probably one of the things that got a lot of people to vote for him, uh, controversial as it may seem, but uh, that combined with people's skepticism of uh, his main competitor, which is Le Pen. Although she did get more votes than she did last time, um, Macron still seems to be uh, in the saddle for now, as it seems. So, big win for Macron. We'll see if the win gets bigger with the French parliamentary elections. But, uh, yes. Uh, Lots of the EU leaders are celebrating this, because France is basically the most powerful country in the eu militarily speaking you know technically germany is the most powerful economically and demographically in terms of population although france is one of the few european countries with a positive demography and a fully fledged industrial base they didn't they didn't export their manufacturing capability yeah they make all their own weapons and i'll leave that at that so there's France, and popping up to the UK, they have offered a deal to India on fighter jet technology sharing, where they'll share with India 
their know-how on how to build fighter jets and potentially even give a license agreement to India for them to purchase UK-made jets as well. So, big moves being made by the UK on India, probably in an attempt to sway India towards, you know, the western side on the Russo-Ukrainian issue, and as a bit of a side note as well on the uh, the anti-China coalition, which India has refused to be a part of, um, probably because they know it's a bad idea to pick a fight with China at this time. It's just not in their interest to do, even if they may ultimately come to blows, uh, probably not militarily, but in some in terms of influence and competition, because they're, they're really big. And they're, there's barely enough room for the two of them, let alone if they were to expand their influence. But uh, that room is limited, and one of them moving outwards is going to encroach on the other. And China's the one moving outwards right now, so now India's making moves internationally. Whereas before, you didn't used to hear too much about India uh, doing things internationally. Now they're everywhere. They're talking They're talking to China about the border. They're talking to Pakistan. They're talking to Afghanistan. They're talking to Russia. They're talking to a whole lot of people. They're really starting. They're starting to reach out, and that's, what, that's where it starts. We'll see if they start to reach out to the Maldives, or to Sri Lanka, maybe even Bangladesh. Or in, and this is my, my thing where they have some really good opportunities on their doorstep, if they're willing to take them. You have the Taliban coming to power in Afghanistan. You have the military, the junta, that's taking over in Myanmar. India can secure itself two best friends if it recognizes Taliban control over Afghanistan and if it recognizes military control over Myanmar. And essentially recognizes them as the legitimate governments of those countries. And the longer it takes to do that, you know, yeah, the, the less of an impact that's going to have. But if they do it soon enough, they can secure themselves two best friends on two separate flanks. And that would greatly alleviate India's sense of being, you know, encircled. At least partially, anyway. It would exacerbate Pakistan's paranoia about India. But... If we're talking about India, that would be a pretty good move to make, especially considering uh, the borders of Myanmar and the resources available to you in Afghanistan. Major buffer, major resources on two different flanks. India could do it. India could absorb it. They could absorb the resources in the markets, and it would be probably really good for Indian industry and the Indian economy if they were willing to take those moves. Because from recognizing you can move on to trade deals and whatnot. Just just going to leave that on the table again. You know. But uh, yeah, India's coming up. And eventually, that means they're going to start butting heads against China over influence. Now, they don't want to do that. Because China is the leading power in Asia right now. Alright? They're the most industrialized country on the planet right now, too. And if you're measuring by purchasing power parity, they're also the largest economy on the planet as well. So China's a juggernaut that India is not capable of dealing with on equal footing right now. And India knows that. 
But as India tries to expand its reach, it's inevitably going to butt heads with China. And China may be accommodating it first, but eventually China's got to think about China. And the two aren't going to mix. And we're going to see that play out across Southern Asia, primarily in Southeast Asia. And who knows where that's going to go. But um, India's on its... India's coming up. They're coming out the shell. And they're starting to establish influence abroad, beyond its shores. And only time will tell where that goes. But uh, another interesting thing that came from the UK's Prime Minister going to India, which is how we got that deal and the potential for technology sharing. One of the things that came from that was the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, um, doing what I can best describe as him preparing the British public for the likely possibility of a Russian victory. And that's just interesting to me because everybody that I listen to, you know, well, except for like the Duran and say Rogue News and whatnot, very lesser known news folks and personalities, all the more well-known news folks and personalities and shows they're all on board the Ukraine's gonna win this. Oh, Russia's bad logistics. Russia's gonna lose. This is has Ukraine already won. Very which has been strange to me, but um I'll digress. Most people and even most leaders have been on that hype train of Ukraine's gonna win. We're gonna make this uh, uh Russia's Vietnam again. We're gonna we're gonna turn it into a slog. It's going to be partisan warfare. The, the Russians are going to be bogged down. And it's just going to be a mass slaughter of Russians. And this, they're not going to be able to take Ukraine. So for the UK Prime Minister, who was also on board that train for the past couple months, for him, on his trip to India, to turn around and make some of the statements that I'm, I'm going to read to you, is very strange, and I'd say probably very telling, that he would say this, especially now, as Russia has just resumed their fighting, well, the intensity of their fighting in Ukraine. They haven't begun a major offensive yet, but they've been ramping up the attacks on Ukrainian troops in the Donbass region. So, and this comes right off the heels of the peace talks coming up to nothing. And both sides going back to the war. So right off the heels of the peace talks failing. And Russia going back to the war footing. You have the UK Prime Minister making statements like this. Let me find it. Alright, here, here it goes. So I said he's preparing the British public for the possibility of Russian victory. And he is reportedly having been said, quote, a collection of security commitments might be on offer, but this cannot be like Article, like an Article Five NATO guarantee. End quote. And Article Five is the attack on one being treated as an attack on all. So whatever peace agreement is made, and whatever security architecture is created, Ukraine's not going to get the NATO treatment. Is what he's basically saying here which is the Minsk agreements, the Minsk agreements, no NATO, 
but you know, in a much more low key form of him conceding that. And the fact that he's even talking about some sort of security, a collection of security commitments potentially being on offer, that's a compromise. Because NATO and permanent NATO expansion was supposed to be the deal. But Ukraine's not getting in on that. Now he's conceding that whatever security we can give Ukraine in the event of peace isn't going to be like NATO. So right off the bat, he's conceding that. And that's what I picked apart from his statements. He also goes on to say, I think that the sad thing is that a Russian victory is a realistic possibility. Putin has a huge army. He has a very difficult political position. The only option he has now is to continue to try to use his appalling, grinding approach led by artillery, trying to grind the Ukrainians down. And then he goes on to say, the situation, I'm afraid, is unpredictable. And that's sort of the end of the quote. So, he is essentially saying, Russia has the advantage in the long term. Because grinding wars are won by the country who can outgrind the other side. A, a war of attrition, which is a grinding war, is won by the side who can withstand it the longest. So when he's saying that Russian victory is a realistic possibility in the context of Russia doing it, this grinding approach, and we'll talk about that later, if Russian victory is a possibility, a realistic possibility, in a war of attrition between Russia and Ukraine, then what he is saying is that even with all the weapons, even with all the money, even with everything that's been given to Ukraine at this point in time, they're still going to lose. Them losing is still a very realistic possibility. Which also implies that Russia probably hasn't suffered the insane degree of losses that many are reporting or even believing that they've taken. In fact, it would sort of suggest the opposite. Because sure, Russia's army is big, but the Russian army is not sitting in Ukraine. A portion of the Russian army is sitting in Ukraine. Not the entirety of it. Only like somewhere between 100 to 200,000 troops. So basically even with the Ukrainian standing military. So in that war of attrition, where the Russians are using a fraction of their active duty military personnel... A war of attrition, they're going to win, and the Ukraine's going to lose, despite the influx of money and weapons that it's still going on right now. The fact that he would concede that says to me, because he's, he's a world leader, he gets much better intelligence briefings than you or I do, he probably knows more. So him conceding that says a lot. It says a lot, and he's saying it now as the fighting has just resumed 
in its intensity in Ukraine, probably to get ahead of the story, all right? Because he's giving himself the off-ramp, I should say. He's giving himself that off-ramp. He's saying Russian victory is a realistic possibility. You should you should uh, think about it and prepare for the possibility. He's not going to say it's going to happen until it becomes an, uh, painfully obvious to everyone that Russia's going to win. But now he's given himself that off-ramp. Now he's prepared uh, in the minds. He's laid the framework in the minds of the British public and even in some of the Indian public because he was in India at the time. But now he's put it in their mind. He's laid the seeds for the possibility that maybe everything we're doing for Ukraine, maybe uh, everything that we're saying about Ukraine, winning the war, might not actually be the case. And I think that's going to be the, the biggest blow to many of the pro-Ukrainian commentators and analysts is him, well, not necessarily him admitting this, well, conceding this as a possibility. I wouldn't call it an admission. He may or may not think Russia's going to win. I don't know what he thinks, but this is what he's saying. But he's put it out there now. So we'll see as time goes on how many other leaders start to sort of take that up and frame it to whatever they need to for their own publics. You know, hey, maybe Ukraine's not going to win this one. Hey, you know how we were giving up all this money to Ukraine? Well, they might not win, you know. Oh, all those weapons we sold to Ukraine? Well, maybe uh, maybe we need to not sell them as much because, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to win and sell Gonna give. We haven't sold anything except for my money. We sold them my money in exchange for nothing. But he's put, he's laying the groundwork for people to accept it easier. You know the idea of Ukraine losing the war because everyone's been hyped up on Ukraine's gonna win, and I, I see it everywhere. Every everyone thinks Ukraine's gonna win this. Well, ex everyone who's more known thinks Ukraine's going to win this. I, a number of my sources think they're going to lose. Uh, and again, the Duran, Rogue News, and I think even Jimmy Dore. Although I'm not entirely sure on where he thinks it's... He doesn't think Ukraine's going to lose as much as he thinks Ukrainian neutrality is an inevitability. So I'll leave that there. But some of the sources I'm listening to saying that Ukraine's going to lose... But a whole lot of the other sources, and maybe it's a source you're listening to. Uh, it ain't me, but maybe it's a source you trust. They're saying Ukraine is going to win because bad logistics, Russia, Russia, the incompetence of the Russian military, yada yada yada. The fierce resistance of the Ukrainian people. I am interested to see as the war goes on. And. As the facts on the ground change, I'm interested to see how many people are going to change the narrative, are going to change narrative to um, the fierce resistance, you know, oh, the, the inevitable, the fighting against the inevitable defeat against Russia, and, you know, how many news agencies are going to switch over to a narrative like that and pretend that they didn't tell you for months Ukraine was going to win this thing. 
And I'm interested to see how many people who believed Ukraine was going to win, how they react in the event that Ukraine starts looking like they're going to lose, like really, really badly, like they're going to lose. So that's something I think is going to be interesting. And of course, when when Ukraine does lose, I'll be the one I'll be the one gloating about it. Uh, how cruel of me, but I'll be honest, I will. I'm gonna say I told you so. I'll be waiting with that bowl of I told you so. But that's just a interesting little thing that came from Ukraine. Uh, well, from the British Prime Minister visiting India. You have some uh in. Goodness, I was I was trying to find a, a nice witty segue to what I was gonna say next, but I I can I I just didn't get I didn't get there I didn't get there I tried okay, but uh to Sri Lanka there's major unrest that's continued there. You have France who's set to sell their own artillery to Ukraine their Caesar artillery um artillery emplacements artillery pieces that's what I'm looking for their Caesar artillery pieces. You have a Russian oil tanker that was seized off the Greek coast. It was later released, but that just goes to show Europe continuing to shoot itself in the foot with regards to oil and natural gas. Shoot, if I were the Greek government, I would have... I would have used a word that starts with an M and a sound that starts with an S and sounds like muggling. But uh, I, I guess that I guess that's... A, uh, asking too much of leadership in this day and age to look out for their countries, well, unless you're Russia or China. But um, I'll digress. Just you know, just leaving it out there. The next time the Greeks decide to seize an oil tanker, maybe you should um, take it for yourself. What? Who said that? Uh, <laughs> speaking of Russian ships, the U.S. is now set to ban Russian ships from entering U.S. ports. The administration uh, claims this is to alleviate supply chain issues at the ports and the blockage there and it's probably just going to end up making gas prices higher maybe it's going to open up the reserves one more time and then we'll be all out of reserves and then the gas prices will hit in full and people will pretend we don't have oil that we can drill immediately to alleviate the problem but you know green agenda I don't know. But, <laughs> but that's uh something to talk about on another day when i'm proven right but until then, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But that's the rapid fire news, and we'll get into Blinken and Lloyd Austin going to Ukraine and then Poland in just a moment. All right, we're back, and now it's time to talk about Blinken and Lloyd's wild journey to the east of Europe. So last week, the Defense Secretary of the United States, Lloyd Austin, and the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, they made a visit to Ukraine and spoke with Ukrainian President Zelensky. They made a number of uh, agreements and commitments, but, uh, well, they were there, but there was nothing there that we haven't already heard before. You know, we stand with Ukraine. We're going to give more aid to Ukraine. The Ukrainian people, uh, we're going to fight back and we're going to help them. Stuff like that, you know. But uh, in spite of that, I decided to sort of look at what they said when they went to Poland. Because that, that's some of the more interesting things that I've seen 
or at least more interesting to me. So that's what we're going to focus on right now. And the, some of the responses they were given during their recent press conference. So Lloyd Austin, uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary, he laid out the official U.S. aims in the Russo-Ukrainian War. And so that's right off the bat. You can sort of see why I viewed this as being more important than what they said when they were in Ukraine, you know. And he didn't say that these were official U.S. aims, but he, uh, when you listen to what he was saying and you read it, you can see that these are line by line what the U.S. is officially seeking to achieve. So I said, why not talk about it and analyze it based on actions? Or at the very least, see if we can analyze it based on actions later on, just like we're doing with Russia and their stated war aims. So... We'll start with his first statement, which is he stated that keeping Ukraine a sovereign domestic country was a goal. All right. And he quotes, well, I'm going to quote him. And he says, quote, we want to see Ukraine remain a sovereign country, a democratic country able to protect its sovereign territory, end quote. So that's the first thing that is the stated U.S. aim in the war. For Ukraine to remain democratic and remain a sovereign country. So, right off the bat, we have a conflict of, we have a potential conflict, I'll say that much. Because for now, we don't quite have a conflict. There is still room for compromise between the U.S. stated aims and the Russian stated aims. Because the Russian stated aim is not the wholesale annexation, right? The Russian stated aim is the demilitarization and the denazification of Ukraine, followed by the sovereignty slash independence of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and the Russian annexation of Crimea being formalized in a treaty. So, very minimal, you know, concessions quote-unquote minimal, uh, if you're Ukrainian, uh, that, that's one too many, but there's still room for Ukraine to be a, an independent country by the end of that, judging by stated war aims, and again, we'll judge as the war goes on whether or not those stated war aims uh, stay true to the actual, you know, results of, at the end of the war, and it's already looking like some of those war aims are being changed on the ground. Uh, you know, as we up the ante on both sides. So that, then you look at the U.S. first aim, which is for Ukraine to remain a sovereign country and a democratic country. The two don't necessarily conflict. Ukraine cedes territory to Russia and the republics. Ukraine continues to be a separate country with their own government. So technically, there is room for the compromise. Because Russia's stated aim is the denazification. Now that will technically entail a regime change. Because, you know, if the Russian claim is that there are Nazis in the Ukrainian government, and I would say that that is true, and most news agencies denying that the existence of Nazis were saying as much about a year ago, but that does amount to regime change, so it there is a potential for conflict there. But I don't think many people would agree with Nazis. I don't think many people are going to equate Nazis with democracy. 
So, in the event that we come to like a, a peace table, if we come to the, the peace agreements, uh, the peace talks again, and you have the United States and Russia talking it out, you could have a proper settlement where Ru Russia denazifies Ukraine with like other countries, other major powers overseeing it to make sure, you know, that it's not just a regime change to put the Russian guy in power, but it's actually denazification. You could have something like that. It, I view that as unlikely because most countries who are opposed to Russia don't even want to concede that there are Nazis in Ukraine at this point. Which is strange to me because we've spent the last five years obsessing about Nazis and neo-Nazis, you know. But um, I guess Nazis are only people you disagree with politically. And real Nazis are meant to be given our full and unwavering support. So, eek. There's that. But right off the bat, there's not much conflict between the stated war aims. But then there's his next statement, uh, Austin's next statement, because when, uh, where is where, look for it, oh, there it is, there it is. So the next statement was, he stated that seeing Russia weakened was a, a major goal of the United States. Quote, we want to see Russia weakened to a degree, to the degree that it can't do the kind of things it has done in invading Ukraine. End quote. So they want Russia to be weakened. Now, there's immediately a, a conflict there. Russia's never, even though that it doesn't necessarily go with stated war aims here, Russia's never going to agree to being weakened. That's just right off the bat. And I'm pretty sure be whatever exactly um, the U.S. government or even just Lloyd Austin himself are thinking about when they think of Russia being weakened, that probably doesn't entail um, them gaining Crimea. Probably does not include getting them gaining Crimea, and probably doesn't include the prospect of the rebel republics j voting to join Russia as well. So, Russia being weakened probably doesn't equate to them getting more land. But you already you already have the conflict there just off of them wanting Russia to be weakened. Russia's never going to agree to that. But after we're at, after that, then you get um, some of his other statements. And when discussing Russian losses of troops and equipment, uh, and Austin is of the belief that these losses of troops and equipment have been very heavy on the Russian side, the defense secretary went on to say that the U.S. wants, quote, to see them, Russia, he's speaking about, to see them not have the capability to very quickly reproduce. And he's talking about the the men, the weapons, and the, cap the combat capability. So he wants Russia weakened. He wants Russia not to be able to recover quickly. Now, how exactly you're going to repair that um, is beyond me or what the time frame on quickly means. Because if Russia can get it back in a year, is that quick or is that slow? Uh, that depends entirely on the person. Because it's not like Russia's going to lose a million men taking Ukraine, at least not at the rate they're going. They're definitely not going to lose a million men. Shoot, they might not even make it to the 50,000 mark at this rate. But whatever you define weakened as, and whatever you defined 
um, them losing this combat capability and not being able to reproduce quickly, probably not going to happen, but this is probably within a context, um, these statements are within a context that Russia's taken heavy losses already, and so probably also is playing within the context of Ukraine's going to be a quagmire for Russia. And so they're just going to get stuck there and bogged down for a really long time. And then they'll gradually lose this, these combat capabilities and they won't be able to get it back very quickly. So that's probably the context that these statements and war aims are being made in. So that conflicts with what we're observing on the ground. Or at the very least, what we think we're observing on the ground. Shoot. But um, so that's another stated aim. And he also stated, and this is the one of the last statements that he made that I took note of, which is, he also stated that, quote, we've moved very rapidly to demonstrate that we're going to defend every inch of NATO, end quote. And here we have a, a very nice statement, you know, if you're pro-NATO, however... That statement comes into conflict with itself because the problem with it is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So it is inappropriate to speak of defending NATO and every inch of it when talking about assisting and aiding a country that is not a part of the alliance. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. I've said as much since before the conflict happened. We have no reason to be there, and yet we are, and we're involved as though it was a part of NATO, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the event that Ukraine loses, because, again, I don't think Russia's going to lose a million men on this, but if they do, and they take Ukraine, they'll consider it worth it. So, that stated aim comes into conflict right off the bat, but regarding the others... Uh, we can run through them. He wants Ukraine to be its own country and democratic. That one can be accommodated. He wants Russia to be weakened. That one probably isn't going to be accommodated. He wants Russia not to be able to recover quickly. That one I can guarantee isn't going to be accommodated. And he wants to defend every inch of NATO, which is okay, except for the fact that you're talking about Ukraine. So these are some of the interesting statements I've seen come out of the press conference. But um, only one of them is compromisable between the United States and Russia. Now, granted, the United States isn't at war right now. Well, they're not at war with Russia. They're not a part of this war. They're an outsider. We're at war just in different places. A whole bunch of those different places around the world. But Russia's at war. They are at war. And so their war aims are probably more significant than the U.S. war aims. And those ones are already changing as the situation on the ground does. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but before we move on from this, uh, I just wanted to put as a side note that the U.S. Treasury Department has decided to send $500 million uh, to Ukraine to help fund pensions there. You know, 
and to fund the Ukrainian military because every dime we can spare apparently has to go to Ukraine. But how can we be funding money? Funding money. How can we be giving money to other governments to fund their pensions when our own pensions are underfunded? How does that make sense? We're going to give money for their pensions when our pensions aren't even full. It doesn't make sense to me. Why does Ukraine get priority over America? I swear this U.S. alliance system is something, something I don't like. But we're in it, and I have to deal with it as disgusting as it may be at times. But, um, yeah, that's, those are some of the stated war aims. And again, we'll just watch and see how they change over time. And the the change in the Russian state, stated aims, um, is a very interesting one. Uh, one that I would say that I've seen coming, but, you know, when seeing it actually happen versus me just saying, oh, I think it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more interesting you know, that way. Because it's real, instead of just me speculating. Although I do have fun speculating, reality is always more interesting than my speculations. Especially when when my speculations become reality, you know? It's great for the podcast. Not so great if you're Ukrainian. Well, West Ukrainian. The Eastern Ukrainians don't mind too much. But... We're going to get into the update on the Russo-Ukrainian war and eventually get around to those war aims and how they've changed. The newest addition to them will probably not shock you, but it'll definitely interest you to see that it's happening now in real time. So let's get into this. So, Russo-Ukrainian war. Um, and I'll start with a, a update on my take on it. Uh, which is that after looking at some more maps of the situation on the ground and waiting a while to see which reports were true, I have realized that the Russian forces, mainly in the northern parts of Ukraine, don't actually hold as much territory as I thought they did. They hold corridors of land along the roads and the railroads. Uh, Chernihiv and Nizhyn are still encircled. However, not to the same degree as, say, Mariupol. It's more of, um, the Russians own the roads around the city, and the cities are technically cut off, but it's not quite the siege that I thought it was. So the Russian forces close to the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, uh, from the east, the from the east of the Dnieper River, they aren't quite as much of an imposing force as I thought that they were earlier on. The force on the western bank of the Dnieper River is there. They do control as much territory as I thought they did, but they're sort of by themselves. They're a salient jutting out towards the Ukrainian capital, and they have remained still for the time being as they're, again, they're on their own. So the, the near encirclement of Kiev isn't well it's not it's not there ukraine is not close to being well kiev is not close to being encircled ukraine as a whole is 
in a different situation. They could be, but Kiev is not in danger of immediate encirclement. Chernihiv and Nizhyn are in very, very loose encirclements because the Russian troops there aren't in as much bulk as they would need to be to do that and to secure the countryside. Um, so that's the situation in the north that I have now been, you know, that I've now confirmed is the case. Uh, that's one of the detriments to sitting back and observing to make sure as much is true as I can. Uh, gotta make sure some things are actually what people say they are, especially in this situation where there's just so much wrong so much wrong, not even between my ideas of what's going to happen and what other people's ideas of what's going to happen, but what's actually true. Again, it took me weeks to come to terms with the idea that Russia isn't in force up there, because in my own bias, I had associated, you know, Russia pulling out as Russia losing the war. And in my bias, I said, well, there's no way they're going to lose the war. So that has to be fake. But turns out they just moved the troops to the south. And now they're fucking going ape shit. Uh, not ape shit to the point of, you know, desert storm. Where they burn cities to the ground. They bomb cities into the dirt. And then take out the infrastructure and whatnot. They still haven't done that. Not quite. But they have gotten more aggressive in the south. So the north is much more loose, right? It's not, they don't really control the land up there and they control the roads. Um, so that, that's the major, major change to the situation as I'm reporting it. Um, so yeah, it's the south and the Donbass where the bulk of Russia's troops are. And it is in the south where the countryside is actually controlled, not just the roads. And so just to paint everything in a nice orderly fashion so that you can get a better picture, the more accurate picture that you deserve, uh, or at least the, the best accurate picture I'm going to be able to give you because I don't know everything. But uh, the picture that I've managed to paint for myself upon accepting the this news and sort of reconfiguring where everything is in my own mental map of what's going on here is that in the north, Russia's troops are sparse, they're spread out across hundreds of miles, and they're concentrated along roads and rails. They can threaten Kiev with rocket artillery, and they can defend themselves, which is evident by them still being there, but they are otherwise very limited in their role in the war, as of right now. They're pretty minimal, and... Incon almost inconsequential. I won't call them inconsequential just yet because the Russians could flood the area with troops and suddenly you could have an offensive on your hand. But for the time being, their role is incredibly limited. So it's really just the Donbass and the South that we're looking at. In the South, that's where you have large numbers of Russian troops. Um, and this is where the, the siege warfare that we've been talking about over the past couple episodes. Yeah. Th this is where the sieges are. Um, it's most present on this front. There are sieges in other parts of the front line, but this is where they've been just absolutely most prevalent. 
the most notable sieges so far being Mariupol and various other cities along the Azov coast where you've had pockets of Ukrainian resistance, they get surrounded, they hole up in a city, and then the Russians just sit on them until they run out of food, water, and ammunition, and medical supplies. And again, I'll stress, we're, to those who are, to those military analysts, and probably, you know, military leaders, you know, generals and planners, probably looking at this, there, there's lessons to be learned if you're looking. And the lesson that I'm seeing is lessons in siege warfare, modern siege warfare, at the very least as it applies to the European continent. That might end up being useful to somebody, who knows who that is, but at the very least it's useful to the Russians right now. So, so you have siege warfare in the south, this is where all the action's at with regards to sieges. And just as a point as i've been trying to think about how the war looks you know it's very strange the the way it's being fought is definitely its own form of warfare like we, we haven't seen anything like this in a very long time it's a war of sieges but beyond the sieges it's a war of movement all right so you have sieges and movement I don't know, I just really can't think of a time like that, except for maybe the most recent being the U.S. Civil War. But the front lines didn't move anywhere near as easily as they do in this conflict. Uh, the, when the Russians move, the front lines move with them. And when the Russians stop, so did the, the front lines. But you have, at that point in time, the Civil War, you'd have movement on the front lines... And sometimes you'd have breakthroughs and you'd have a very rapid movement, followed by a siege, which would just slow down all the progress. And you, they, the Union would stop and siege down a city until it surrendered, and that would take weeks or even months. Um, and then they'd move on, and it would be a war of movement again. So, that's sort of the best comparison I have to the situation in Ukraine right now. And... But that with, say, modern warfare, where you have missiles, you have tanks, you have jets, you have air defenses, you have a little bit of navy, a little bit of naval action, but it's really on land. So that's sort of the best idea of what we're witnessing in Ukraine. Although I'm pretty sure what's happening in Ukraine is definitely going to be its own form of warfare that will be studied and learned from later on. Maybe even refined into something new entirely. But that's for a later date. Just wanted to throw that out there. You know, get that observation off my chest. Because uh, this whole situation, as tragic as it is for many, is quite the learning experience for a lot of other people. And again, this all just depends on your perspective. But uh, I am learning quite a bit as to things... And I'm pretty sure there are others learning more than I am from this. Pe probably people who are more involved in it than myself. But I'll just leave that there. This is an, its own form of warfare. I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have a witty name to give it. Uh, so that you can, we can all just latch onto it. Like, you know, when I called the Iranian alliance the Persia Pact. 
you know, stuff like that. But uh, maybe one day I'll think of something. But I'm, I don't know. I don't know. Siege and move. It's not as catchy as Pike and Shot, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with something. We'll come up with something. But so you have sieges in the south. That's where the bulk of the Russian troops are. They control the countryside, not just the roads and the rails. That's where most that and the Donbass is where most of the action is. Then you have the east, which is the Donbass, where there is also large concentrations of Russian troops, but much heavier resistance from the Ukrainian military. Because that's where the bulk of them were pre-positioned before the war, because they were fighting the Donbass. Um, so you have a lot of Ukrainian troops, and you have most of the best Ukrainian troops who were over here fighting in the war before Russia stepped in. And now they're pinned down. They, they can't retreat. You, you retreat, you give up the Donbass, and the Russians get to move further into Ukraine. They can't retreat, but at the same time, they're being pressed from all sides, and the Russians are sort of creeping in from their rear. And all in a double pincer maneuver. It's very slow, mind you. But the Russians are getting there. Gradually. And that's eventually going to force them to either retreat or die. But that's the dilemma that... Well, that single dilemma can basically be summed up for the entire Ukrainian army in the Donbass, really. Because um, that's what they're facing. You have... Um... You have contested control of the countryside, which is due to the Ukrainian military being in this region in bulk. But you still have more of that countryside under Russian control than you have in the north. Because there's just enough Russian troops there to assert at least some control over the countryside. And that's enabling them to you know, continue to pump supplies into all these troops. But on this front, both sides have been most active, with Russia making small tactical encircling maneuvers, and Ukraine desperately trying to balance. It's a very dangerous balancing act that they're doing, but they're, they're, they have, they're not have a choice. They do not have a choice. They have to play this balancing act where they have to balance holding territory, right, stopping the Russian advance, and then not getting trapped and encircled by those Russian encircling maneuvers that they're doing on the smaller scale, on the you know the tactical level, instead of just the big strategic encirclement. We have big Army Group 1 meeting up with Army Group 2, and then you have this massive pocket of troops. They're doing that on the macro scale, and then on the micro scale, you have small Russian teams moving in, exploiting gaps in the front lines, just snaking around and whatnot, uh, moving in unison where they come up around you and, you know, do they do a pincer, a small pincer, and the Ukrainians, they have to choose. Do they stay and fight or do they fall back so that they don't get cut up? But if they fall back, well, now the Russians have gained more land. And you may or may not have just extended your front line doing that, so you open up even more gaps for more Russian encirclements. They're, they're, they're in this really, really bad position. And they're 
the more the Russians are able to encircle their troops, the fewer troops they have to hold the line in the first place. It's a really, really, uh, excuse my French, it's a really shitty position they're in. But they don't have a choice but to play this game where they're balancing these two impossible positions. Do they defend and get encircled? Or do they move around and give more ground? It's a really, really unfortunate position. I don't envy the Ukrainians whatsoever. Um, especially when you consider that on top of that, uh, this is also the place where the, most of the Russian Air Force has been and has been operating, providing close air support to the ground forces. So not only are they trying their damnedest not to get encircled, they're trying their damnedest not to get bombed by the Russian Air Force, who has total control of the skies here. The Ukrainian Air Force has been shot out the sky by Russian air defense and the Russian Air Force itself. So, Russia has total dominance of the skies, and they're bombing with impunity in the Donbass. And it's not just the planes, because where the Air Force does not bomb, the artillery does. And it's here that we've seen heavy, very, very heavy shelling in the Donbass which is highly reminiscent of what Ukraine did to the Donbass republics for eight years. So it's a it's a, a very brutal and bloody irony that it's now Ukraine who has come under this kind of withering barrage. And it's probably going to be an even greater irony that Ukraine is probably going to lose the war. They're probably going to die to this sort of bombardment uh, in a matter of months where they failed to capitulate the Donbass republics in eight years doing the exact same thing. So they did this to the Donbass republics for eight years and now they get it done to them in the same region. Now they get it done to them and they're going to capitulate in months where they failed to get the Donbass to come to heel in eight years so a double irony here and it's probably a very deliberate irony as well you know that's just how revenge plays in war i mean it's not everything is super rational uh there's definitely emotional there's strong emotions that run in war so this is probably a very deliberate revenge for what the ukrainians were doing in donbass for the last eight years but russia concentrated their fire and are systematically destroying Ukrainian troops, forcing them to retreat. But because withdrawing their bombed out troops would mean leaving openings in those front lines, which would then enable Russia to encircle more troops, Ukraine, after being bombed, after their troops get bombed and they have to pull them out, they have to send in new troops to fill the gaps, right? To keep the front line stable. Those troops that they send in are then treated to the same hospitality as the last batch. And then when they get bombed out and then pulled out by Ukraine and replaced, uh, well, they get pulled out and then they get replaced. And then those boys get the same treatment and so on, creating this industrial slaughter of Ukraine's army. 
in the Donbass. This, this is what Boris Johnson was talking about when he said this appalling, grinding approach. Now, notice it wasn't appalling when Ukraine did it to the Donbass for eight years. So just the sort of a cultural blind spot there that I've noticed when people talk about Ukraine is no one talks about what Ukraine did to the rebels for eight years. But uh, I will, just out of my being a stickler for accuracy. But this is what he was talking about, that grinding approach, where they're just bombarding a, a single position that Ukraine has to man, or else their front line gets weak and loose, and then the Russians can walk in. So they bomb this area. The Ukrainians put new troops there. They bomb it again. The Ukrainians take them out, put new troops there. They bomb it again. They shell it. They throw artillery. They throw rockets at it. And Ukraine, they, they just, they can't withdraw because then they lose. But if they stay and they keep replacing the troops there, they're also going to lose. Because as you do this, the veterans will die. The veteran the, the trained, the experienced Ukrainian troops, the, the high quality, the high tier, the cream of the crop, they start to die out because they get hit in these barrages. But when they die, they're replaced with rushed out, barely trained conscripts and foreign volunteers, which degrades the quality of the Ukrainian army over time, they're probably already starting to feel the effects of this. Um, and before the Russian, you know, began the bombardment. But when Russia does make their next move, Ukraine might not have the bulk of properly trained troops to hold them off. It'd be like it'd be like during the American Revolution, where you'd have the Continental Army and then you'd have the militias. When the British came, the, the militias would fire a shot and then scramble uh, if they fired a shot at all when the British did their bayonet charge. And it was the Continentals who had to were tasked with holding them off. But if you don't have the Continentals there and you only have the militias, well, every battle is going to be a shot and then run. If you even get the first shot off, but they're going to lose... They're actively losing their trained men, their professional army, meaning they're going to be left with the militias, the untrained militias, who will leave when the going gets rough. They're going to, well, I said untrained militias, untrained troops in general. They're going to leave when the Russians make their offensive. They're going to, it's not going to be the heroic defense that Ukraine is probably hoping that it's going to be, and that it may have been, if it was, you know, the troops that Ukraine had just three months ago. Instead, I feel it's either going to be a massacre, or you're going to see mass surrenders. Like, even bigger than the scale we've seen at Mariupol, where you had almost 2,000 troops just surrender. Uh, 1,000 came out at once. They surrendered. Uh, so, you you could have mass. You could have a massacre or a mass surrender. That that's where I think it's gonna go. We'll see if that ends up being the case. Uh, and an interesting observe 
observation I've made in all this is that, uh, and this is regarding the Russian military and how they behaved in the beginning of the war versus how they're doing things now. Uh, the observation I've made is that after making it all the way to Kiev in a matter of days and still technically being at the gates of Kiev, because remember they have that pocket of troops in the north uh, coming down from Belarus, you know, they, they have that area under control and they are technically still at the gates of Kiev, even if it's not going to be an encirclement, at least not yet, because the rest of the troops in the north are sparse and just on the roads, not quite on the countryside. But in spite of making it all the way to Kiev in a matter of days after the war was initiated, Russia has now fallen back. They've regrouped, and they're now taking a slow and steady approach in the south. So they went from rushing down Kiev in the north to taking the slow and steady approach in the south. And in essence, and this is the observation here, they've canceled Blitzkrieg and dusted off the Russian steamroller. Now, there's some history, if there ever was, especially when you consider that Russia's fighting Nazis. They, <laughs> they gave up Blitzkrieg in exchange for the Russian steamroller. So, after the war, though, and this is another thing that I'm you know, thinking of when regards to this war. After the war, it'll be very interesting to see which of these two methods cost Russia more in terms of men and in terms of equipment. Was it the initial rush, the shock attack at, aimed at Kiev in the beginning? Or was it the slow and steady grinding approach going from the south? Which one results in more civilian casualties as well? That's also something. Because they're going to bomb out every Ukrainian troop that has the audacity to defend his country. Well, that can probably spell disaster for a city or two. Assuming the Russian doctrine allows for it. Or assuming that the Russian war aims change on the ground. Uh, well, assume those aims change with changes on the ground. Which is a possibility. Because... Uh, and I'll, I'll get into the changes that we've seen, but it'll be interesting to see which of these approaches cost Russia more, which was more effective. Uh, you know, those are things to look out for. Uh, but for now, Russia has begun bombing railway stations in Ukraine, uh, so they are now beginning to target infrastructure. They weren't doing that before, um, but they're now targeting the rails. They haven't targeted the internet, or the power, or the water, or the gas, yet. Yet. And I have to say yet, because they, they weren't bombing railroads before either. But now they're bombing the railroad stations. So, the infrastructure is now on the table to be bombed. And they're bombing the railways. Which is probably just going to... Th th this is probably them completely canceling out any effect that all these weapons shipments to Ukraine is going to have on the war just completely canceled out because if the rail because if you can't get the weapons from the the western parts of Ukraine which is where the weapons are coming in if you can't get the weapons from there to 
the eastern parts of Ukraine, where there's actual fighting, well, then the weapons may as well not be there at all, because you can't use them until the Russians get, you know, close enough, and by that point, they can just bomb the depots where you're keeping the weapons, and shoot, heck, that's assuming Ukraine has the manpower to even use the weapons, because millions of Ukrainians are fleeing, and the people who've stayed in the army are now being, you know, shat upon in the Donbass. They're just getting bombed into heaven, basically. They're being bombed into the afterlife. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a lose-lose situation for Ukraine. And I was wondering how Russia was going to deal with all this weapons coming, all these weapons coming into Ukraine. Aside from, you know, controlling the airspace and aside from controlling the seat lanes, which they do, they're just going to bomb the railroads. Now, how, how's that? Now you can't even get these weapons you're getting to the front line, which makes them useless. It, uh, that is, if there was ever a chess player, they, they would have just wiped out all the pawns in a single move somehow. But there you go. No more rook for you, I guess. But that's wild. That's absolutely wild. <clears throat> because you have so much equipment. We were just talking about all the money and all the aid and all the equipment going into Ukraine. If, it, if the rails aren't there, how are you going to get them to the front lines? Are you going to... Because people were talking about bad Russian logistics. Can you imagine trying to get all these artillery and all these javelins and all these all, all, all these bullets and all these shells for the artillery pieces, all these rockets, all the fuel, all the, the, the clothes and the boots and the guns, trying to get them by road from the western parts of Ukraine to the Donbass? Can you imagine that? that that's... That's a target, is what it is, and it's going to be terrible for Ukrainian logistics, because they're going to be under fire while you're trying to get these weapons to them. So, Russia is now targeting infrastructure, and the infrastructure they've chosen is going to destroy Ukrainian logistics. It's just going to absolutely wreck Ukraine's logistical capability, even to fight them back in the Donbass. Right, just the Donbass, let alone get the weapons they're being given into the combat area. Meaning, all those weapons are useless. They're not going to stop Ukraine from getting ground down. They just can't get the weapons to them, the troops that need them the most. And that's going to cost them the war. Uh, if there was a chance that they were going to win it, their chances are getting slimmer by the second as Russia's bombing these railway stations. Uh, and the damage must be bad because the Ukrainian government has also made it illegal to even record and film the damages done by these airstrikes. So that gives you an idea of how much damage must be being done to Ukraine from these sorts of airstrikes. But for now, but for now, uh, that's all. That's the only piece of infrastructure being bombed by Russia. We'll see if that also changes with time. But, speaking of things changing, and I've been talking about this all episode, 
the Russian war aims. They wanted to take Crimea for themselves. They wanted the Donbass to be in two separate independent countries. And then they were going to leave the rest of Ukraine alone. That was the deal. Denazification, demilitarization, you accept those territorial changes, and then that's it. But here we have the change. Because now there's talk within the, the Russian military and, more importantly, within the Russian government, there's talk of fully integrating Ukraine's southern provinces into Russia proper. Notice, it's the same provinces where they have control of the countryside. Nowhere else are they making these sorts of proposals and talking about this. So, as Russia moves forward, actually occupying the land as they take it, instead of bypassing all Ukrainian resistance, like they did in the north, as they, take, as they actually take the ground underneath them, and the ground behind them, we may see similar calls within the Russian government to annex more and more Ukrainian territory. And uh, I said it in last week's episode, the farther Russia, the farther into Ukraine Russia has to march, the less likely they'll be to give that land back to Ukraine. And we're already starting to see the early stages of that. I mean, right now, it's just talk about taking the southern provinces permanently. A few weeks from now, it could be, hey, we're going to take that and the land between the Donbass republics and the Dnieper River. So everything east of the Donbass, well, no, everything east of the Dnieper and everything west of the Donbass, we're going to take that too, you know? We're going to take everything to the east of the Dnieper River. And, you know, those are our gains now, you know? Because we occupy them, they're ours now. And by the end of the war, who knows what we could be looking at? Again, if Russia has to march all the way to Lviv to end the war, well, they may as well take the whole damn thing. We could be talking at that point about the wholesale annexation of Ukraine in its entirety. There won't be a partition, and which is what I'm thinking of. Uh, shoot, they're already they're already throwing those plans in a disarray. I thought it was going to be. The Donbass republics of Luhansk and Donetsk. I thought it was going to be Novorossiya and then Ruthenia, you know. And then all of them would be formally a part of Russia, but like sort of autonomous regions within Russia. No, it's looking like it's going to be piecemeal annexations. After annexation, after annexation, that, that's what it's looking like right now. This they could stop after just this. And again, this is just talk of them taking the southern provinces. But we're already starting to see the escalation. And that's the that's the trend. Alright? That's the trend. It's escalation. We saw the escalation from the pro-Ukrainian side all the way up to ideas of a no-fly zone. Right? And all the way up to Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Now we're starting to see the Russian side up the ante as well. So in this game of brinkmanship that Ukraine isn't even a part of, we could see Ukraine be the biggest loser in all of it, as Russia may just walk away 
one Ukraine bigger than it was yesterday. Which was another prediction of mine. But that's sort of what we're looking at. Very interesting to see how things change over time. And it's all happening in real time. But, again, we'll just have to wait and see. And that's all there is to it. But that's all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world, just like those war aims, is changing. It changes all the time. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.